Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the uh, London School of Economics and Political Science. My name is Professor William A. Callahan. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department. And I want to welcome you to the Fred Halliday Memorial Lecture, um, which is sponsored by the International Relations Department. And we're really, really pleased. I mean, we've been waiting so long for this to happen. So I think we should give ourselves a round of applause that it's happening, finally. And I'm really pleased to welcome our speaker, Professor Sophie Harmon. Um, And I've known Sophie because she's a filmmaker, and I like to make films too, and she does wonderful things making film um, to, to bring up important issues uh, about AIDS and other things, but in a very entertaining way. But of course, <clears throat> Sophie is uh, an expert not just in filmmaking, but in lots of other things, particularly public health, global public health, women's health. Um, and she's won numerous prizes for this, for her academics, but also um, for her film. She was nominated for a, a BAFTA uh, for outstanding debut for a British writer, director, or producer in, 19, uh, <clears throat> in 2019 for her, the film that I'm talking about, which is named Peely, which I recommend that you see. Um, and so Sophie's going to talk to us about hijacking women's health. I've read a draft of it, and it's, it's like, wow. I mean, she's going to challenge us. She's not going to... She's going to make us do things. Uh, or call, it's a call to arms. Um, and so Sophie will speak for about uh, 40 minutes. And after that, um, <clears throat> Dr. Marsha Henry, uh, who's in the <clears throat> Department of Gender Studies here at the LSE, will give a comment on it. And then we'll go to a Q&A. Um, but, but before we start that, I want to thank a few people. I want to thank the. Um, the Fred Halliday Memorial Lecture Committee, uh, which has Martin Bailey, Tarak Bakawi, and, and me um, for doing this. But <laughs> Martin and Tarak did an enormous amount of work as well. Uh, I also want to thank our, uh, our administrators, our organizers in the IR department, uh, Zoe Adams and Katie Hill. Um, and I think what I'll do is, uh, I guess I have a story about Fred Halliday, and then um, uh, Dr. Martin Bailey will tell us more about <clears throat> Professor Halliday and the Memorial Lecture. My own story is I just met Fred uh, when I came to the LSE for the Millennium Lecture, one in August 1998. And I was a very young lecturer, didn't know much. And I made, I was talking about, because I studied China, I was talking about Chinese propaganda and how Mao had a, like a sunburst behind him. <laughs> and how it meant something, something Chinese. And what Fred did, we had went on a break. What Fred did is he went to his office, and he dug up some Iranian propaganda that also had a starburst. And he came and talked to me. He said, hey, look at this. This is really cool. It's like, wow, he's treating me as an equal. You know, He's, re- he's kind of um, recognizing um, and respecting people regardless of their status. And that's, that's my. Fred Halliday's story is that he's he's really interested in the ideas. He was really interested in talking to people, um, and that you know is a wonderful example for all of us. So what we'll do now is I will cede the floor to Dr. Ma- Martin Bailey, who'll come here, 
and say a few words, and then he will introduce uh, Professor Sophie Harmon. Okay? Thanks, Bill. Um, I've been asked to say a few words about Fred Halliday. I suppose I should start by saying I never actually met Fred, but I feel like I, I did, because um, when I was an undergraduate, I started reading his work. Uh, and since um, moving to LSE and working here, I've heard lots about him. And so it's a real honor just to say a few words. So Fred Halliday, in whose honor this memorial lecture um, is, is held, was one of the world's leading international relations scholars of the Middle East, and a major public intellectual, and one of the most revered scholars across the LSE. He first enrolled as a PhD student at LSE in 1969, and in a period that surely gives hope to PhD students everywhere, took 15 years to complete his dissertation. <laughs> Spending that time traveling widely, learning multiple languages, and editing the New Left Review, and cultivating in that time that most precious of academic resources, the ability to write. An ability that produced a raft of books, uh, around 20, hundreds of articles in newspapers and learned journals. Having started in post at LSE in 1983, in a period that offers feelings of inadequacy to junior academics everywhere, it took Fred just two years to rise to become a full professor in the department, before eventually occupying the Montague Burton Chair in International Relations from 2005 to 2008. And what Alejandro Colas and George Lawson have described as Halliday's emphatic internationalism shines through in the memories recalled by current faculty lucky enough to have worked with him. A gifted linguist, Fred spoke 12 languages fluently. The numbers on this vary uh, with working knowledge of many more, a pastime that he pursued in his spare time too. Colleagues speak of newspapers in multiple languages that would occupy his desk or taking breaks from marking IR 410 exams for journalistic interviews with Middle East correspondents in Spanish, Arabic, and Farsi before returning to his scripts. A man of the left, Fred also spoke the language of the right, admitting he preferred the Telegraph to the Guardian since, in his words, it's important to know what the enemy is thinking. <laughs> Finally, although no naive utopian, Halliday's unrelenting engagement with the world around him and his advocacy for the oppressed, even as his definition of the oppressed changed, offered a continual reminder that our duties need not only be limited to interpreting the world, but can initiate a process in solidarity with others of rethinking the world and in so doing, championing the cause the course of justice. In the final years of his life, Halliday began to write for Open Democracy, a series of articles showcased in Political Journeys, published posthumously in 2011. It featured a 2006 piece titled The Forward March of Women Halted, with a question mark. In it, Fred reflected not only on the theoretical impasse that he identified in third wave feminism, but touched too on the international instances of persecution and violence against women and women's health. Here, he signaled the alarm bells, too, of threats to Roe versus Wade in the United States, threats that have become now all too horrifically apparent. Whilst Halliday's untimely death in 2010 left us wanting more, this work continues. And it is on this note, then, that I am honored and delighted to hand over to our speaker this evening, the main event, uh, Professor Sophie Harmon. Thank you.
thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for being here, and thank you for such a kind introduction. So what do you think is going to happen? Is George W. Bush going to jump out of a cupboard? It was 2005. I was in Kampala in Uganda talking to people working on the HIV and AIDS response. During this period, it was the beginning of the gold rush of billions of dollars, particularly going to sub-Saharan Africa in response to HIV and AIDS, around prevention, treatment, and care. The UN had committed to the Millennium Development Goals, three of which were targeting uh, health, so end HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria, reduce maternal mortality, and reduce child mortality. And in academic circles, there was a growth of conversation around how health was impacting security concerns, and also how security was starting to impact on health and health priorities. But at the time in Uganda, people weren't talking about health security or the securitization of HIV and AIDS. They were talking about George W. Bush. And the reason why was not for some of the reasons you may think, and apologies to those of you who came here thinking this would be about the Middle East. This is about the limit of my Middle East uh, inclusion. It wasn't about the war on terror or the wars in Iraq or Afghanistan. The reason people were talking about Bush was because of PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief one of the biggest bilateral financing mechanisms for AIDS or any health issue in history. Since 2003, PEPFAR has invested $100 billion to date in combating HIV and AIDS. It was the brainchild of George W. Bush. Now, I've always been a bit uneasy about PEPFAR. On the one hand, PEPFAR was a game changer. When I started doing research on HIV and AIDS, people were dying. PEPFAR came along and said, here, we will give antiretroviral treatment for people living with HIV. We will stop people from dying. This was before the Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis and malaria, and it's before anyone could think that this was done. So it really changed the lives and communities of people that I knew through doing research, particularly in East Africa. But it was also highly controversial. The antiretrovirals that were provided came from US pharmaceutical companies at great expense and could have been cheaper sourced from other countries such as South Africa and India. It was definitely a charity model that wasn't about development, it was pretty much let's just get these drugs to where they need to be. And it was seen as a distraction from the war on terror, a rebranding of Bush if you will. Don't look at what I'm doing over there, let's just concentrate on what I'm doing on AIDS over here. But really, for the people I was talking to in Uganda and why they wanted to keep Bush in the cupboard was the controversy over abstinence, be faithful, but whatever you do, don't talk about condoms. The ABC of HIV prevention without the C. This was a big issue for people. How are you ever going to fight AIDS without talking about condoms? And of course, PEPFAR was also controversial because it was linked to a Republican president, and therefore it was linked to the global gag rule. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar, the global gag rule, a.k.a. the Mexico City policy, was passed by Ronald Reagan in 1984. It is the rule that any agency receiving funds from the US federal government could not provide abortion services or be seen to be promoting abortion. Every Democratic president since the passing of the global gag rule has reversed the decision, and every Republican president since has reinstated it. Most controversially, when Donald Trump decided to extend the rule to cover any 
agency, UN body, you name it, in receipt of funds targeted for global health. The impact of this was huge. Imagine you are UNFPA, the UN Population Fund. Your work is sexual and reproductive health. You take money from the US government and you either have a choice of no longer having that money or no longer talking about modern forms of contraception or abortion and how to uh, access abortion. Anyway, let's go back to Uganda in 2005. In 2005, the organisations I were talking about were well aware of what the global gag rule meant and also what PEPFAR meant when it said A, B and no C. On the one hand, there was lots of money coming from the US government to make a real difference in this country, but they were gagged. You can't end AIDS without condoms, and you can't improve maternal health without abortion. And two of these things were these kind of goals and indicators that were being set by the UN. They had targets and indicators linked to funding that they had to achieve, and they knew to realise them, they really had to push at the limits of what they intended to do. And so just because Bush didn't want people talking about condoms and abortion doesn't mean these services stopped. They just became sanitised. Globally, there was a growth in focus and emphasis on maternal health rather than sexual and reproductive health rights. And this just wasn't around key donor states or member states of the UN. This was happening across the UN system. And this is something that sexual and reproductive health um, rights advocates have been keeping an eye on for a long time, saying so we need to stop sanitising this language. But there was a deliberate attempt here to say, well, if we talk about maternal health, we can keep everyone happy and keep the money coming. Reproductive rights and justice didn't vanish. It still existed in activism circles, but in aid, nowhere. It was maternal health. The sanitation also used the creative use of budget lines. So if you couldn't have money to, say, uh, promote condom use, talk about abortion, there were some things that you could do within the limits of that. For example, I remember talking to a procurement specialist in Kenya, and this was around 2006, so the, you know, the height of PEPFAR, and he said to me, oh, you know, Sophie, this whole no condoms thing, whenever this country runs out of condoms, I just go to the US government and they always give me money to get some condoms. If it's an emergency, it's fine. We can always push up against the boundaries of what we're allowed to do. This sanitation also led to the creative use of NGO partnerships to do the reproductive work, to focus on reproductive health and rights. There was an idea that some states or funders would be one person removed from the kind of uh, front line of reproductive health care. So all this started to happen with the idea of like, you know, just don't spook Bush in his cupboard. Just keep him in his cupboard and we can push up against what we can do. But the problem with all this and bubbling underneath the surface is what my colleague Sarah Davies and I refer to as a kind of modern silent security dilemma. So using Lena Hansen's work on security dilemmas. On the one hand, if you sanitise and quieten what you're doing to secure services, funding, protect the women that are seeking your help, you can also make a quiet pact with state officials who know what you're doing and happy to kind of keep quiet as long as everyone keeps quiet. And this is a common story I hear when I talk to people in a Ministry of Health, particularly in countries where they're working under certain restrictions around modern contraception or abortion issues. They are happy to turn a blind eye for a while as long as those indicators on maternal mortality are being reached and nobody exposes this kind of quiet pact. But of course, this creates a real sense of instability and risk. What happens when what you're being quiet about becomes weaponised by who you're hiding it from? 
What happens when that quiet pact is not politically feasible or useful for certain actors anymore? And when this happens, you become the enemy. You're the enemy, you're in the pocket of the West, you become a white NGO trying to curtail the population of Africa, bringing Western ideals to a country like Uganda or Malawi. You become Nazis trying to kill the people of Poland and you become gender ideologists. And these accusations stick, not necessarily because they are true, and I do not believe them to be true, but because of the history of global health and the relationship between reproductive or sexual and reproductive health, eugenics and population control in the past. A past that global health is still not really reckoning with. So it gives oxygen to these kind of responses. The other issue you have is the more that you try to hide from George W. Bush in the cupboard, sanitize what you do, the greater your security dilemma and the greater the risk of backlash. Now, the history of women's sexual reproductive health and reproductive justice is always one of backlash. There's a reason why there's a book on this called Backlash. And women's rights activists are pretty hardened to it. Okay? Any women's rights or reproductive justice advocates I talk to, they're like, we're just ready. We're on the front lash. We're ready for the backlash. We're always thinking about when it's coming. And this current backlash that we're living in is a bit different. It's a backlash that hijacks the language of social justice movements, it divides women and constantly reframes the debate as being something around these culture wars against liberal elites, feminists and academics like me who have no experience of the real world and don't know what they're talking about, right? And the thing is, this threat of backlash has never gone away. It's been playing out in offices with Bush in the cupboard across the world for decades. It was always there. And it was bubbling away, particularly in global health, where we were really trying to focus on progress, the progress that was happening with women's health in particular. We were all feminists now, so we didn't need to worry about it. And yet, here we are. The bushes of the world are out of the cupboard. So this lecture is going to be about how women's health is hijacked for political ends. And it's also about how politics explains progress and backlash in women's health, but more importantly, I think it's how women's health can provide us an insight into understanding modern international relations. So when you think about how women's health is used, abused, and hijacked for politics, I'm guessing the first thing you're thinking about is this. Okay, that word, that's always good. The overturning of Roe versus Wade through the Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization et al. by the Supreme Court in June 2022. This ruling ruled that abortion is not a constitutional right and that states have the right to regulate or ban abortion. Effectively, banning abortion or the risk of banning abortion in the US for the first time since 1973. Shocking? Yes. Surprising? Mm, not so much. So let's start with the shocking. Part of the shock is this odd double movement that seems to have been happening in recent years. And I think Jennifer Thompson's work on this is really great. This idea that actually things are meant to have been getting better, particularly in women's health, particularly also in reproductive rights. We had repeal the eighth in Ireland. We had the green wave in Latin America, which I'm sorry, but I have actually done my nails for this event to appreciate that. <laughs> on the podcast, they can't hear that, but just, you know, shout out to Shoreditch Nails. Um, <laughs> We had the green wave in Latin America, from Chile to Argentina to Colombia. The political will, female politicians standing up and saying, no more, we will not tolerate this anymore. A health sector dominated by women, progressing into leadership roles. 
high-profile female leaders in healthcare coming out and saying things about abortion. So, for example, Melinda Gates, one of the most powerful women in global health, if not the world more broadly, talking about how she reconciles her Catholicism with access to abortion and its importance for maternal mortality. UN agencies dedicated to reproductive rights, international law that states have signed up to that they're meant to adhere to but obviously don't. Funding, popular books and initiatives advancing women in science and health, as well as kind of special issues of really high-profile medical journals like The Lancet. These books, they kind of were on the bestseller list. They get attention. Some of you may have even read them. So things were meant to be going better. We also see global outrage when the rhetoric was starting to turn. When Jair Bolsonaro came to power, very topical this week, in Brazil, Globally, everyone was saying, no, this can't happen. We can't see Brazil go against the green wave in Latin America. And of course, we also had the Black Lives Matter movement resurgent during the pandemic and the murder of George Floyd. What was so important about the Black Lives Matter movement for maternal health was shining the light on black female maternal mortality around the world and including here in the UK. At the time, so not when I say at the time, so about four, three or four years ago, the statistic was that black women in the UK are five times more likely to die than white women of uh, maternal-related death. This has now gone down to four times more, which is still a shocking statistic. This statistic was kind of known within black women's health circles, some women's health circles, but it wasn't widely known. I was always shocked that it was never on the radio or the TV. I mean, some people are like, Sophie, why are you shocked? Like, well, wake, you know, wake up. But it seemed like such a kind of glaring statistic. However, the Black Lives Matter movement coming at the time of the COVID-19 pandemic really pushed this onto the global agenda, particularly also in the UK. I also think we need to thank the greatest of all time, Serena Williams, for nearly dying in childbirth, which is obviously horrendous. But she, in her experience, she also raised the profile of what is happening to black maternal mortality around the world. Anyway, all these things have been going on. Everyone's getting aware of maternal health. Everyone's kind of getting aware of women's health. And there's a general sense that we are not going to tolerate this anymore, right? We are not going to see the politics and the politicization of women's health anymore. So yeah, when Dobbs versus Women's Jackson's or, uh, Jackson Women's Health Organization happened, it was a shock. But it's not really a shock if you follow US politics, is it? And it's not really a shock when you think the global norm around the world is to restrict abortion. And it's also not a shock if you start to think about the global trend towards populism and the far right. We know that abortion bans are never really about stopping abortion. If you want to stop abortion, which is ridiculous, because as, soon as, as long as people can get pregnant, people will want abortions. But if you want to reduce the number, try other ways. Access to modern contraception. Uh, try and do something about violence against women. Increase welfare support at times of economic crisis. Women's access to reproductive health, abortions, safe contraception is always hijacked to some political end. If you're an elite wanting to play to your grassroots, bring up abortion. Signal your populist credentials, appeal to that faction of your political party, start talking about the family and reproductive rights, or not reproductive rights, abortion. Bolsonaro, Trump, now Maloney in Italy, populist and foreign policy, there is always one thing that unites them, and that is curtailing women's reproductive health. And then when I was writing this, I was thinking about this. 
Where has all this been in international relations? So about five or six years ago, I was co-editing the Review of International Studies, which is the British International Studies Association's journal. And we got so many papers coming to us about populism. You know, what does populism mean for international relations? What's populist politics? We even did a special issue on it. And very rarely, if at all, I think, did anyone mention reproductive health and reproductive rights, even though it's the one thing that united so many different populists and their foreign policy. And for me, this was the first case of IR looking away from women's health when it was really trying to signal something to us. And maybe I could just end the lecture here and let you all go home early. Yeah, everyone's thinking about dinner already, so why not? Populists and the far right, they use women's body and healthcare as a means to gain political advantage. Tale as old as time. Any feminist textbook would tell you this. But no, it's not just politics, the religious right or the far right that are hijacking women's health. It's actually much deeper than this, and there's something else going on. Okay. So, I want to tell you about the biggest sexual abuse and exploitation scandal in the United Nations history. Peacekeepers, we all know about peacekeepers, humanitarian actions, OCHA, no. This scandal, the worst scandal in UN history, happened in the World Health Organization, the WHO. Between 2018 and 2020, 83 alleged perpetrators, 21 with direct links to the WHO, were accused of sexual exploitation and abuse of women and girls aged from 13 to 42 in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the DRC. I'm just going to refer to it as the Congo to make life easier for me. All of the perpetrators were involved in responding to the Ebola outbreak in the country, and when the WHO finally, and I emphasise that because there were a lot of delays in this, published its heavily redacted independent report, everything you could imagine that people would say came out. The Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus called it a harrowing dark day for the WHO, one of the darkest days in the institution and his role within it. There was a lot of talk about lessons learned, how this cannot be allowed to happen again, how everyone will, uh, the perpetrators will be brought to justice, blah, 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 right? We hear this all the time when these things happen. And my first thought was, well, how did this happen? And what does this tell us about what's happening in the WHO and women's role within the WHO? Did we learn nothing from the AIDS scandals or the peacekeeping scandals of abuse and exploitation? And the first response that seemed to come out of how this happened was, it's an emergency, right? The WHO was responding to Ebola. This was a crisis. No one thought about it. And if I had a dollar for every time someone said this to me, I don't know what I would be doing, but I would have a lot of money. This is the general response in health. That there's a health emergency no one thought about the women. All right? This has happened every time anyone raises this question. We were this emergency imperative. We had to do something. Then this is escalated even further when you think that this was happening during COVID-19, when it sort of was and wasn't, but anyway. So this is like, like, not only were we fighting Ebola, but then we had to think about COVID-19. This was a massive issue. The WHO was getting it from everyone. We were balancing the biggest pandemic in the world. And then there was this kind of awkward idea of, well, it's the Congo. This lazy, racist stereotype that the Congo, Mardin conflict, has a history of sexual violence. It's the context in which this happens. But if you actually follow that logic, 
And then you think to yourself, okay, so the people who are going to be responding in country, so the Congolese involved in the Ebola response, is going to be a mixture of doctors, WHO officials, and an army of healthcare workers and volunteers. The majority of them will be women, given women make up the majority of the healthcare workforce around the world. Okay? Then you think to yourself, you're going to bring in a whole international community to try and respond quickly to that outbreak. That should be raising red flags for absolutely anyone with half a clue of gender relations and power relations in emergency contexts. So why were those red flags not reached? Either no one thought about them, someone thought about them and they were silenced or ignored, or there's a confluence of factors which also suggests there was a lack of gender expertise or a silencing of gender experts within the WHO in the Ebola response. And this is a real problem. Because part of the response of the WHO is as a bad apples problem, okay? The WHO are the good guys. In health, health we care about people, we want to make people better, we're the good guys, we're a progressive space. It's not an institutional problem. And more than that, you need to protect the good guys, like don't criticise the WHO. I mean, I sent one tweet and I had the WHO in my DMs on Twitter. And I mean, I have like 2,000 followers, I was like, why are you even bothering me? But this is how much they were like, not now, don't criticise the institution now. And then there's a wider question here of, well, what were the consequences of these actions? The report was delayed. No member states withdrew funding from the WHO. The Director General kept his job. No one senior lost their jobs. They were partly suspended at times. Nothing really. There were no consequences of this. And this made me think, would the outcome have been different had the women involved and the girls involved been from Canada rather than the Congo? Would this have been taken more seriously? Would states have withdrawn their funds? Would high-profile leader have been you know, put in charge of driving forward a reform? And on the one hand, you don't know, do you? I mean, sexual abuse and exploitation happens in countries like Canada. It reckons with its own history of abuse. That happens, right? But all I have to go on is what I know from nearly 20 years of looking at women, gender and global health, particularly in health emergencies. And that that women and women's labour has always been exploited in global health. Not just in social reproduction, i.e. doing the care work in the family that brings up healthy children and healthy families and is the bedrock in which all health systems depend, but in health reproduction. Women are the majority of healthcare workers in the world, but not the leaders. They're the ones dying on the front lines in healthcare work. When you see violence against healthcare workers, I see, that as a form of, oh, I see that as a form of violence against women or gender-based violence. I think we need to talk to each other more, those people who work on gender-based violence in healthcare, because there are clear overlaps there. And if you're interested in this, I really would like to credit the work of Larissa Fast and Roisin Reid from the University of Manchester, who are desperately trying to get data on this and work with the WHO to see what is happening with violence against healthcare workers. It will shock you to learn. There's not much data on whether this affects women more than men, even though women are more healthcare workers. I mean, shocks no one, does it, right? Women are the reserve army of volunteers in health. They're the ones that underpin these million-pound projects as peer educators, counsellors, immunisation teams. I remember in 2020, I was in Sierra Leone talking about the new health emergency surveillance systems, and someone said to me, OK, right, so the health surveillance, right, it's... The billions of dollars goes into this. It's to try and detect outbreaks quickly so you can respond to them. Okay? Obviously, it's been working really well. So, 
At the core of this in a country like Sierra Leone, to get that data, you need people to go to house to house to see what's happening in a local community. In this one context, when I was talking to someone, I was like, well, who is it? Who's going door to door? Who's, who's investigating? He was like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're mainly women. They're mainly women. And I was like, okay, are you paying those women? Oh, no, no, no. And then he could see my face go, you know, I try and have neutral, independent researcher face. So. And he said, oh, no, but Sophie, you should see the look on the grandma when she first uses an iPad for a first time. That's a gift to her. And I was like, that is a gift to her, but you could also pay her. And then that was the end of the story. Women are the ones mopping up the gaps, gaps left by woeful health emergencies. So I'm sure many of you don't want to relive 2020. I certainly don't. When you were trying to manage your life, do your job, educate your children, and pretend that that was all okay. And in this sense, women are always the solution to fixing these problems in society, but also in healthcare. And this really is a form of exploitation of love. And Chris Rossdale uh, from Bristol told me this one. He's like, what you're talking about, Sophie, is the exploitation of love. And he's dead right. Why do you think women were schooling their children when they were also trying to keep up full-time jobs and stay sane during the pandemic? Because they didn't want them to lose out. Sorry, and I know there'll be some men here saying, well, I also did that. Yeah, I know. But we know from studies led by people like Claire Wenham and her team that actually women did more of that labour. So, you know, blame Claire. She's got the data, not me. Um, like, why were they doing it? Because they didn't want their children to fall behind, because you care about your children. You're doing it because you love them. It's an exploitation of love and care. Finally, how women's health is always exploited is women's health is frequently justified as a means for economic growth. And those of you who've worked in women in international development will know that this is a story that you've heard from the World Bank in the 90s and the early 2000s. Now it's really been taken on by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who are very much, you've just fixed women's health, you just growth, they'll save the economy, they'll save the world. And all of this we've just known for years, right? None of this is new. We've been talking about it in international development, we've known about it in global health for many years. But few people cared when predominantly African women were facing these burdens in the global HIV and AIDS response. And few people really cared when women were subject to violence in Ebola quarantines in Sierra Leone in 2014-16. to 16. And perhaps a few more people did care when women went to prison in El Salvador having been accused of abortion. And the reason more people cared in the latter one is because there is a quite a well-organised transnational social justice movement around reproductive rights in healthcare, which interestingly don't really see themselves as part of global health, not everyone obviously. But there's a kind of fissure here, that people who work in reproductive rights and justice are hesitant about linking themselves to global health, partly because of the medicalisation that happens in health. And I know this is a really important issue when we talk about trans healthcare as well. But, well, no, not health. We'll talk about rights and justice, but not health. That's something different. But in global health, where were people talking about this? They were starting to talk about it, but not so much. And I know this because prior to COVID-19, I looked at all the reports, gender strategies of the major health organisations, that kind of boring work that you're like, I'm just going to keep focused and look for this stuff. And at the time, prior to COVID-19, only in Garvey, the Global Vaccine Alliance, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundations had an up-to-date strategy that even mentioned gender or women's health beyond certain strategies, even around, say, cervical cancer or breast cancer and things like that. Nothing else. The WHO, the pages were so out of date, I can't even tell you. There was really nothing. But people did start to care 
when women were affected by these issues during COVID-19. It changed. Everything changed with COVID-19. And is that the scale of COVID-19? Massive pandemic? Sure, that's part of the reason. Was it previous research and mobilisation? As I said at the beginning, we see this kind of trends to people starting to care about women's health. Absolutely, definitely. At this time, you know, COVID-19 happened, there was definitely a wealth of uh, people working on women's health saying, not again, we are not going to be ignored again. But really, it was a traction or an opportunity structure in, what, in that it was happening to the West. That's what happened, it happened to the West. It was happening to rich, white women, and that's why people started to pay attention. And at this minute, I just want to pause and share my solidarity with the, limin, uh, the, limin, with the Women, Life and Freedom movement in Iran that's happening right now, following the killing of the Kurdish woman, Masa Amini. And during this time, following her killing, there were calls to, like, where are the international feminists? Why are they so silent on this issue? And I think this is really important. Social media is meant to have ended our silences around these issues. And it's great that people are starting to pick up on it now. But I very much want to acknowledge and show solidarity with the movement. Anyway, back to health. Not back to health, but, you know, back to this. What happened then was a surge of attention to these issues on the gendered impacts of the pandemic. The research that was coming out was amazing. There was so much. I, I mean, I think it would take the rest of my academic career to read it all and make sense of it all, because there is so much. Every institutional figurehead had to give lip service to these issues, say why they're important, launch an initiative. And advocates did really fantastic work of bringing gender to even be considered in pandemic preparedness and response. And I think sometimes we're quite sceptical about, well, it's included as an indicator, but, you know, then states never implement it or ignore it. It's important. It's there as a political statement. And I think it's hard to do that, so kudos to everybody who was working on that and made that happen. But after the surge, this kind of gold rush to activism and attention, all the papers, there was a return to what Laura Shepard calls the old alibis, okay? And join in with, you know, this is like the chorus, if you're familiar with this. But where's the data? And the data we've got, I don't think the data's good enough, so can we have even better data? But where's the evidence that this actually works? Like, you've said that we've got to include it, but is it really working, and is it really relevant? And then, yeah, you talk about women all the time, but what about race, what about class, what about indigeneity, you know, whatever. All these issues are really important, but all of them are diversionary tactics, always. It's not like the people who ask these questions are really concerned about indigenous health or racism or class, very rarely. And then, of course, there's everyone's other favourite, token visibility. So I've got two experiments for you, and I stole these from Tony Hastroff and Jamie Hargan, who uh, talked about them at a conference. First, if you look at the cover of every health report or the front page of every health institution's website, I will bet you that there is a woman or a woman of colour on this. And I've kept checking every day before I said that. It's phenomenal, right? This is basically what will greet you, this image. Secondly, every time there's a report or a high-profile activist, so is everyone else searching? You know, just pay attention for a bit longer, it's fine. It raises a question about gender or women's reproductive rights being curtailed. Look at the images that health leaders put out on social media. They are always flanked by women, or there are always women coming out to defend them. And this is another classic defection, uh, deflection tactic. Got an issue with gender politics? Here are your women. Kind of reminds me of the binders full of women in the US election from one of those times back, right? 
So what does all this tell us? So what does this story of the last two years from like exploitation to COVID-19 tell us? Well, women's health needs, time and labour are always hijacked to the advancement of health for all and growth of the economy or providing international security. And I'd really like to shout out the work of Professor Sylvia Chant, um, who used to work here at the LSE, whose work on the feminisation of poverty alleviation has really informed my thinking. And every time I think about these issues, I'm always there. And also the great work of Maxine Molyneux as well in a similar way. Women's health is also hijacked for the protection of institutions. So women and their well-being, particularly when we look at the case of what happened to women in the Congo, are always collateral damage. Always. Just protect the institution, women are collateral damage. And health emergencies are used to wash this abuse. Okay? So Ebola, for example, it was an emergency, therefore we will wash what happened in these kind of countries. And health washing works the other way too. And I thought to myself, am I going to bring this up or will I leave it? And then I thought, what would Fred Halliday do? I was like, I think Fred Halliday would talk about this, so I'm going to talk about it. The other way you can health wash and how women's health is important is using women's health to wash authoritarian regimes and the murder of opposition and political opponents. And the master of this is Rwanda. Rwanda has seen the most fantastic outcomes in women's health, right, reducing maternal mortality rates, outlawing um, cervical cancer. They're going to be one of the first countries in the world to just bring cervical cancer down. Fantastic. But, there's always a but, every time there is an accusation against Paul Kagame's regime, there's like, well, look at what we're doing in women's health. In global health, there is a strange silence around Rwanda. There's only praise for Rwanda. And on the couple of times there have been, say, an editorial in The Lancet saying, oh, there's this new book out questioning what Kagame does to the opposition, there's always a slapdown and a response saying, you don't know Rwanda, you don't know our history, and look at what we've done on maternal health care. It's health washing. It's using women's health to wash any critique and silence criticism of that regime. Okay. I thought Fred would do that, so I'm just going to do that. Finally, we need to debunk the myth of progressive spaces or institutions. You are not being progressive if you're blocking change with alibis. Again, everyone here at LSE who works on women, peace and security, the fantastic work of Anne Phillips from the early 90s, still applies in global health, the problem of progressive institutions. Everyone in global health, I think, should read Anne Phillips's work. And then there's just this problem, like we know sexual abuse and exploitation, it ruins lives. Token inclusion blocks real progress. But the problem is also, these issues undermine these institutions. The World Health Organization, I want to love, okay? It's like, a, it feels like a family member when you work in global health. You want to say, come on, I want you to be better. These issues create a lack of trust. Now, trust is that golden thing that everything in health relies upon. And transparency, which is a problem for member states, it's a problem for the public, and more importantly, it feeds the nationalists. And this brings me full circle to the problem with Bush hiding in his cupboard in Uganda. You can't really pick and choose when you politicise women's health, and you may sometimes be able to predict the outcomes, but you can really rarely control it. If you hijack women's health as a means of getting more money, investment, to cover something up, to deflect your lack of gender equity in the world, to try and look like a leader, to win votes, whatever it is, if you're doing it for any other reason, the improvement of women's lives, you are part of the problem. And this has to stop. 
Women's health needs to matter for an end in itself, not for growth, not for international security, not for other people's health, not for votes, not for standing in the international system, and not to save an institution or politician. It just needs to matter for women. Okay. Well, I felt like I was standing for election there. It's a bit of a, <laughs> bit of a lift, sorry. Okay. So how do you stop it? If this has to stop, how do you stop it? And this is my penultimate story, I promise. I want to end with what I would say is the, la the worst I told you so of all time. So academics quite like to be right. You don't like to be right if you work in global health in the last three years. In February 2020, I was in Sierra Leone. Now, I'd been in Sierra Leone earlier at the end of the Ebola outbreak, and I was back trying to work out what happens when the international community leaves, what happens to gender, politics, what happens to women's health. And I was you know, talking to lots of interesting people. And I was reflecting a lot on Ebola. And lots of people who've been working in the Ebola response, particularly those who tried to raise the flag of issues that are happening to women, they were told, not, you know, no time for that, not now, dear. We've got an emergency on our hands. Can we talk about the women after? And they were talking to me about how violence went up during the kind of quarantines. And I remember texting Claire Wenham, my colleague, just being like, oh my God, if this happens in COVID, like we are, oof. The burden on healthcare workers was huge. Teen pregnancy increased, which meant those girls then got kicked out of school. And there was an increase in maternal mortality. More women died because of maternal mortality than Ebola in the three affected countries. And if you see these pictures, the picture on the left, you can't actually make her out because obviously she's in full PPE. But this picture is Salome Kawa. Salome Kawa was a Liberian nurse who was on the front cover of Time magazine as one of their persons of the year for her role in the Ebola response. She died because of maternal-related complications. She died because she went to the hospital to say when things start, she thought something wasn't right, and she wasn't allowed in because everyone was worried about her work with Ebola, that she would be carrying Ebola. This woman survived Ebola, but died because of childbirth. Okay? Why are we in this situation? This is what I want us to think about. And all of this, what I kind of was left with the thinking when I think about the last two years, is the women knew, you know, with reproductive rights overturning Roe versus Wade, the women knew this was coming. And in the same way, talking to women in Sierra Leone, talking to colleagues that were mobilizing around COVID-19, we knew what was gonna come we knew that domestic violence was going to go up if you had a lockdown. We knew that women were going to be burdened with increased chores in the domestic space and labour in the domestic space. But we couldn't, what could you do about it? We couldn't stop it from happening. And I just thought, what's the point of knowing stuff if you can't stop it? Now, I promise this is the end of my existential crisis. Okay, we're going somewhere with it. And if feminist IR helps us explain the politics of why women die when they don't have to, you know, women's health is always used for something else rather than uh, a good in itself, we need to fix the politics. And we also have to understand how women's health helps us explain international relations. We could use the politics of women's health or women's health indicators as a proxy or a canary for understanding the international system for looking at the rise of populism and the far right, for seeing when this is going to happen, for human rights abuses and authoritarian regimes covering up certain issues, for who is going to have an effective pandemic re response and who is actually properly prepared in terms of global health security, to cooperation and multilateralism, even like financial crisis. Right, can we see this? Is there a relationship here? And in many ways, when I was thinking about this, there's nothing new here, okay? 
Feminists have been pointing this stuff out for ages, of saying, well, look at what's happening to the women, and then you can start to see what's happening. LGBTQ advocates have, and I think this is a real strong case of, well, if they're coming for us in the morning, they're coming for you in the evening, okay? And I think what's particularly helpful about women's health is, okay, the data is flawed, but we have some data. People actually have to record when people die. It's a bit flawed, but, you know, but we have it. This is also meant to be a space, a progressive space. So if progressive spaces are being hijacked in these ways, what's happening in every other sort of institution? Women's health is also fascinating because it involves so many different actors, so many different aid agencies, organisations, experts, epistemic communities. Now, of course, there's a risk that if we ask these questions, we are then instrumentalising women's health in other ways. We're saying, well, we're going to use women's health to stop war, but rather than just helping women. But I think in doing that, we can also, yeah, we can do that, but also fix women's health as well. And there was another question that a colleague said to me. They said, but also people can use this data and it can get into the wrong hands. That's a problem. And as my great colleague, Joanne Yao, pointed out, she's like, this, yeah, not me, not me. I pointed out, she's like, well, the problem, of course, is with prediction, you would never know that if you were right. And in that case, I don't care. If women's health is getting better and we're averting a lot of disaster, then that's who needs to be right. I told you at the beginning, being right sucks. <laughs> that's okay. But I still think we should try. I think those of working us in global politics, we spend so much time trying to get global health to take international relations seriously. I think actually international relations needs to take some of global health seriously and not just pandemics, you know. On one hand, you're like, well, of course I are take global health seriously. Look what's just happened. Yeah. I think anyone who worked in global health, suddenly, everyone was calling them saying, I really need a chapter for my IR textbook because I totally didn't think about health until now. That happened, by the way. And one day I will name and shame the person who said that to me. But actually, because it's not just pandemics, it is about how do we stop Salome Kawa and women dying from childbirth when they don't have to. It's these wider issues that I think are so important. And I think if I look around the world, um, around the world, around the room, so many women from LSE have inspired me, and I think so many people who have been working on these issues, coming together, could really move this forward. I've got 39 years to change the world. So said Fred, and by the way, I'm going to call him Fred, so I've never met Fred Halliday, but I know so many people he mentored or supervised, they all just called him Fred. He's like a Brazilian football player. Actually, there is a Brazilian football player called Fred, isn't there? But yeah, he's just like one of those people. He's like Beyonce. He can go with one name, right? So he's that famous. So I've got 39 years to change the world. So said Fred to James Dunkley when they met at a party for the publisher Verso at the Groucho Club, also about 39 years ago. Fred had joined LSE and was about to change how many people understood and saw the world. During this time, about 39 years ago, it was the beginning of the first pandemic of my lifetime that shaped so much of my work, the HIV and AIDS pandemic. And now, the average life expectancy of a woman in the UK is 83. I'm currently 41, so rough bit dodgy math. I've also got 39 years to change the world, okay? And I've always understood international relations as being the power relations that prevent and cause unnecessarily death and suffering be it caused by war, disease, poverty and or inequality. How do we stop people, and not just people, ecosystems, dying when they don't have to? What are the necessary structures, cooperation and governance required to achieve or challenge this? And how does health and death shape practices in international relations? 
And for me, women's health has always been at the centre for this. I always come back to it. You know, I, I started in international relations. I worked in international political economy. I then thought, well, this is global health is the most fascinating. And I did that awful self-sexism. I was like, well, I love feminism. I read feminism, but I don't really want to talk about it because then I'm going to be pigeonholed. Who cares? Don't do that. It's a waste of your time. I always come back to women's health. But agree, though, sometimes IR, Fred said, can be a little bit of a kind of eating itself discipline. It's faddish. But actually, I kind of love IR for its pluralism and its diversity. I have lost count how many times someone has said to me, this is really interesting work, Sophie, uh, but is it IR? Is it, is it IR? They said to me when I worked on health, they said, this is international development. They said it to me when I made a film, because they were like, is film a method? Can you? Is it IR? And to which I just went, yeah, it is. And then that was fine. And everyone just moved on. And that's the great thing about it. It's the pluralism of it. So if anyone asks you what you're doing, is it IR? Just go, yeah, and then just move on. It's fine. So we've got 39 years to change the world. What I want to do, we want to stop women dying when they don't have to, and not because I have a white female saviour complex, maybe a little bit of one, but I still think it's important for understanding power relations. And I really want to stop saying we saw it coming. This is the big thing of pandemics. We saw it coming. We knew the big one was coming. We knew that this was going to happen to women. And centre women's health to understand international relations better. Because you cannot understand international relations without understanding the global politics of hijacking women's health. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh Sophie, now, uh, one thing I forgot to say is if you want to, um, there's a hashtag up there, hashtag LSE hijacking health, if you want to uh, social mediatize this. Next, we have Professor Marsha Henry, who'll give us uh, some thoughts on this. You can do it from here or from the podium. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. If I go up there, I'll take too long and we won't have enough time to go to the audience and I can see... Um, that Sophie's uh, very engaging and animated talk is, um, you know, I could see people nodding and engaging with. Okay, well, first, um, I mean, we always clap at the end, but really, that was a really exciting talk, and I want to just congratulate you oh, on, <laughs> on 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 so many. So many things in that. Um, the citational politics was fantastic. The politics was fantastic. Um, and I think it was really, it was so thoughtful in terms of what's happening at the moment and how we can extend some of these conversations into other disciplines, into sub-disciplines and, and so on. So thank you very much. So I have a couple of things that came up in the presentation, the draft that you sent me, some of which, you, most of which you've covered um, in today's talk. But I, yeah, so there are more questions and like, um, points of discussion, so you can um, you can engage with um, whichever ones you want. <laughs> so I was really struck by your use of the term um, the silent security dilemma, because um, yeah, it made me. It, it obviously um, is uh, in reference to Lenny Hansen's 
The Little Mermaid and um, the security dilemma um, that she writes about. Um, and I guess in outlining it, I'm really curious about whether you had thought about the ways in which the security dilemma or the idea of a security dilemma is both embedded in the heteropatriarchal histories of IR and security thinking itself, and at the same time, um, a progressive, like if I put that in quotation marks, a progressive project that remains hidden on the margins of IR scholarship. And, and I guess it made me think, why do you think it's women's health in particular? I mean, you've spent the whole talk actually talking about that, but why do you think it's women's health in particular that remains susceptible to this minimizing and sidelining and hijacking? Are there other kinds of subject matters? Are there other kinds of political events that are potentially subject to this? You also say that the history of women's reproductive rights and justice is always one of backlash. That really struck me. Um, and I think, I think you make a really compelling case. So is it the case that women's health will then always be a subject that needs to be articulated through a sort of narrative of woundedness or injury? Is it possible that by revealing the ways in which social justice discourse is hijacked, that there's potentially a denial of some of the colonial investments of Global North actors, including scholars. Even talking about hijacking women's health tends to objectify women's health as if it's a property of multiple actors. And I guess I, I would want to push you on those metaphors a bit further. I'm struck by the paradoxes that you outline between progressive achievements, for example, in Ireland and Argentina, and then the regressive developments around um, sexual assault, for example, in the Supreme Court appointment. Um, but also in the contrast between countries where abortion, abortion services have not been threatened despite the rise of um, despite the rise of anti-immigrant and right-wing sentiments. So I'm thinking, am I, am I wrong about the Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, for example, where I haven't seen this kind of attack on reproductive rights in the general sense, um, but you see this rising right-wing. But again, that might be that there are specific women targeted for these reproductive reforms. And I guess I want to ask you about um, yeah, I really liked the, the effect of the presence of NGOs that you um, alluded to, and I wanted to ask you about the effect of the NGOization of gender-related problems. So in 2013, Charlotte Mertens wrote um, a blog post about some of the ways in which the proliferation of NGOs in DRC was transforming the landscape for victims of gender-based violence and for women's access to healthcare. And she cites one report as claiming, quote, that some aid agencies exaggerate rape stories in order to get publicity and thus funding. Some local observers point to the humanitarian business of sexual violence and its funds-driven nature. Others point to the many women who claim they have been raped in order to access healthcare. 
okay and so the sort of final point that i wanted to ask you about was you're not going to be surprised about this but it's about sexual exploitation and abuse so those of you don't know one of the things that i write about is sexual exploitation and abuse in peacekeeping missions so i was really interested in how sea as i'm going to call it how it features in these progressive accounts so it also features in in progressive feminist accounts so you argue in the paper that sea ruins lives and i think this is a really powerful intervention in the scholarship on humanitarian and development projects but is not limited to these so as many have pointed out it can be understood as sea can be understood as lying at the intersection of patriarchal practices and colonial projects however i wonder if some of the hijacking that you speak of is also taking place within this literature um, in relation to good and progressive projects. So in 2009, the former force commander um, of the peacekeeping mission in the DRC, Patrick Camemere, stated for an NGO-based media outlet that, quote, it is now more dangerous to be a woman than to be a soldier in modern conflict. And on a number of occasions, Camemere has argued that SEA amongst a few peacekeepers is nothing in comparison to the forms of sexual violence committed by Congolese soldiers against Congolese women. In doing so, I believe that Camemere contributes to this idea that these spaces contain a few bad apples. So what you've, what you've the bad apple theory. <laughs> um, but that the overwhelming goodness of these spaces, goodness is in quotation marks, um, compensates for some of these excesses. So I wonder too if this hijacking of humanitarian spaces for the purposes of deflecting against critiques of colonialism, militarism, patriarchy, is not too dissimilar from the hijacking that you've been tracking. So I guess, I mean, the whole talk was about this and was a response to this. So this question was written before Sophie <laughs> gave her talk. But my final question is, so how do we opt out of these narrative traps so that we can offer meaningful critiques and usefully support those who really, who really need it? Thank you, Marcia. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Marcia. Uh, I think we have, I know we have uh, 26 minutes left. <laughs> so I think I'll give Sophie a chance to respond to oh. comments. Or do you want us to gather questions? No, no, I can go for I mean, why not? Sure. Why not? Let's just work hard on this. Um, so first on the silent security dilemma. So we wrote, so Sarah Davis and I wrote about this in International Studies Quarterly. Um, and when we were writing it, I remember Sarah going, oh, no, 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 I, I don't want to go there with security dilemmas. For the same reason, you know, it's so embedded in that kind of heteropatriarchal idea of international relations. And I was like, no, but it's really helpful because it's kind of explaining what we're trying to say. And is there a way that we can actually use it in this kind of context? that strips away of some of those more kind of traditional uses of it within IR. Um, whether we've done that or not, I'm not sure. And so I absolutely take that point, and that's my cop-out that Sarah said, let's not do it. And I was like, but I think it's useful, so we should, we're going to do. 
Um, and then the backlash. I'm really cross with myself because at the at the start of the talk, I was actually meant to talk about social justice movements and it not always being women wounded. But you know, when sometimes nerves get the better of you and you just miss a chunk of your text. And I think that's the one thing that I think we always have to think about. Women's health is always seen as this kind of negative story that it's bad or getting worse or you know it's being used in all these political ends. But also, there's just this fantastic international history of women working together to say we're not going to take this and I think that's what gives you hope and that's always I mean it sounds really cliche but that's always what gives me hope because this is how things change things don't change because states want to change them or the UN does it it's from that kind of activism and women talking to each other around the world that does that and I think what happened after Dobbs um, versus Jackson Women's Health Organization is that there was this emboldening of other leaders that were like, if the US can do it, we can. I was talking to someone from the Kenyan Center for Reproductive Rights, and they were like, we are so worried that this is going to happen. But at the same time, there's this great emboldening where people around the world are saying, you know, they're going with the green wave. You have the green wave flags in Argentina when the, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. Lots of the movement came out outside the US embassy in solidarity. That is happening. It's not always negative. And also in spaces where I work in Sierra Leone, after Ebola, there was this like raise of like growth of youth feminist movements that were doing lots of work, and they were they were not like the feminist movements of old, not old, like like you know, lots of uh, countries such as Sierra Leone have a really long history of feminist activism, particularly in women, peace and security. But in, from like the late 1990s, 2000s, it was getting sanitised, feminism was a bit ugly. And now they're like, no, patriarchy is awful, it's all the patriarchal fault. And I was like, whoa, okay, yeah, cool, right, fine with that. So I think there is this kind of backlash, and I think you're right, we shouldn't always articulate this in the kind of wounded injury. And I absolutely, yeah, the hijack, it does, you know, those metaphors I think are, basically, I think you're right, Marsha, they are problematic. And I think it's important to kind of emphasise, actually, this kind of it's not all doom and gloom really um, and actually the backlash part kind of fills me with hope because it's like look we've dealt with this before and we will deal with this again and how women across the world just mobilize to help you know women access abortion so water on waves people putting abortion pills in the post you know signposting to things all that kind of stuff um uh yeah the netherlands denmark and sweden and the attack on immigrants i mean yeah, I mean, that's a classic sign of progressive space, of saying we're progressive and that we don't do anything that's negative. Absolutely. And there was, I was trying to remember when you spoke, because there was someone who was doing some research on this, and they work, I think, I can't remember where in Sweden, and I've completely forgotten their names, but I'm going to tell everyone about it at some point, because, yeah, they do really great research on that. Um, NJOization. Ah, yes, right. I think there is a real issue, and I mean, so... I'm writing a book on this called Sick of It, which deals with lots of these different issues. And one of the chapters is about this kind of eating trauma phenomenon, how we want to eat these stories of like sad stories to mobilize aid money. Um, and I think states do this, donors, um, NGOs do this, of where, you know, there has to be a kind of a harmful story. I know Medicine Sans Frontieres got in trouble for the images that they were posting, which you think there's no way you're going to put someone in theater on your Twitter feed, like crazy. And there's a certain logic of how far does that go? And I think this kind of idea of amping up the kind of exaggeration of sexual violence is a real problem there because it's sort of saying, well, how traumatic do you want to get before people are paying attention to this? And I think 
this comes back to, because I'm trying to like go through all this really quickly because so much, your problem of how do we opt out of these narratives? Because I think that part of like amping up some of these issues, it gets you a part of how do you roll back from that? I think we're so used to instrumentalizing women's health in these ways. You know, women's health, it works for growth. Women's health is great. It'll protect security. All of security runs. But how you come back from that and say, no, this just matters. And I think that is actually the answer. It matters because women should also be able to access health. And that's really boring. And someone's like, no, but you've got to put security on it. Like everything else is securitized. But I think it's changing because I think it's also about galvanizing a movement across global health with people who are interested in gender and women's health in ways that you saw in other sectors that were saying, no, just calling it out and seeing when you're doing it and seeing when other people are doing it and saying, I see what you're saying, but this is why we should do it. And when people get more powerful um, and have more of a vocal voice, I think you could see that vocal voice. Does that make sense? Uh, a higher profile voice. Um, and yeah, absolutely. And when you said uh, this point on sexual uh, exploitation and abuse and peacekeeping and this idea that you're compensating for or deflecting from critiques of colonialism, patriarchy and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I, that's exactly what I'm trying to get at. So, but thanks, Marsha. I mean, I'm just going to sit with all these comments for a week and go, oh, yeah, that was good. And you'll probably appear in another lecture like everyone else does. But thank you. Okay, so now we have uh, 20 minutes for questions from the floor. Uh, if you have a question, raise your hand. Someone will come and give you a uh, microphone. And before you ask your question, please tell us your name and your affiliation. If you're uh, working at the LC, a student, an alum, something else, please mention that. Um, and also, real questions, not comments. Hi, thanks. Um, I'm Claire Wedham. I'm an associate professor in global health policy here at the LSE. Um, Sophie, as ever, amazing. Um, I guess when I was, when you were talking about global health and how kind of, you know, the, the, the going back to the, the, um, all the excuses, right, of why they're not doing it, right, like there's not enough data, the data's not good. I wonder if you could give me or give us your thoughts on actually something else, which I think is occurring currently in global health, which isn't, we haven't got the data, it's Oh, we've got a woman, right? We've got a woman in leadership. And so now all our problems are solved, right? And it's this very much like kind of add women and stir rhetoric. And actually like, how does that, how does that almost make this more difficult, right? Because the kind of representation that's going on uh, is often equated by public health people as like, this is enough. And kind of how do we get over that hurdle? Yeah. Okay, thanks. Do you want me to answer that one now? Uh, is there another person who wants to ask a question? Uh, in the back there, yeah. Let's gather three questions. Mine's a very different one. Um, you've got USAID, World Health Organization, Garvey, Gates Foundation. I mean, is this what global health is? I mean, the majority of money spent on health in developing countries is out-of-pocket expenditure that poor people advisedly spend on fake drugs, poor quality service, etc. Secondly, there's government. And, but to you, global health seems just to be donor-funded, um, big organizations like that. And I don't really understand what, what global health is. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Third question. Oh, way in the back. Thank you. Hi, I'm Kate Miller. I'm an assistant prof in the IR department. Uh, I teach gender and international politics. Uh, thank you so much, Sophie, for such a wonderful talk. What I would like to ask is, which 
may seem slightly paradoxical given the content of the lecture is in terms of sort of what Claire was alluding to in terms of women in leadership, adding women in stir, and also all the old alibis, the deflection from colonialism, uh, continuation of imperialism, economic exploitation, and so forth. What is, is there something that is health specific, right? Not so much in the animating issue, but in the response, because it strikes me that in terms of the old alibis, this is what we see in terms of women and like people of diverse genders and sexualities and global governance more broadly in like a number of institutional spaces, as you noted. Thank you. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you. Three great questions. Um, so first, obviously, to acknowledge that Claire did so much work on gender and COVID-19, and the real reason why there are so many indicators now in pandemic preparedness is off the back of a lot of the work Claire did. So just to acknowledge you there, Claire. <laughs> Share the love. Um, yeah, so the women in leadership, absolutely. So this kind of like deflect from gender because here are my women, here are my binders of women. I mean, this is a huge issue. Um, and it's one that I kind of refer to as conspicuous invisibility. So the women are conspicuous and the gender becomes invisible. And that's, again, happened in international development and we've seen it before. And I think there is a frustration that you and I share that in a way, I really would hope that global health institutions, uh, kind of solutions to some of these problems, just jump 30 years, you know, go 30 years back, read a lot of kind of like the feminist literature on representation and meaningful representation, look at all the mistakes that were made in women in international development, and can then we just move on? And there seems to be a disconnect from that. There's still, well, if we have a woman, that's fine, we've sorted the problem out. And of course that doesn't work. You know, look at Maloney in Italy. She's not representing women's health to the fullest. And I think we say this, but it doesn't seem to connect. And then I think there's also a conscious thing that we have to do as women who have these platforms are invited to kind of sit um, with this, is know when that's happening, right? So know when you're being used for token inclusion and think about how you can use your inclusion to push that. Token inclusion is lovely, it's worked well for my career, but it's also in that space, what do you do in that space when you have that space, I think is quite important. And call it out, like we see what you're doing. It's like I was saying with that experiment that I stole from Tony and Jamie, that every time there's an issue that comes out, you know, Tedros is flanked by women, or different actors in global health are flanked by women, and that's a real problem. That doesn't mean you're doing anything meaningful. I think every time we see that, we're like, well, what meaningful change is actually happening? Um, and then the question on, is this what global health is? Well, I'm sorry I gave that impression because I would strongly disagree with you that that is not what global health is. And if you went and asked anyone, you know, in a, where I work in, a, say, a rural community in Tanzania, what's the WHO? They'd be like, what? Like, or what's PEPFAR? They'd be like, no. But if you said, okay, so now you're starting to get ARVs, they're like, it comes from the government of Tanzania, but then it goes all the way back. Or why do you think you're getting ARVs, but last time you tried to just go to the doctors for something, the doctors were, sh you know, you couldn't reach a surgery or you couldn't reach a clinic and you just went to the pharmacy and you were just given some antibiotics. That they can understand, and obviously. And I think, actually, it's not just these institutions, but these institutions do matter because obviously out-of-pocket expenditure is a decision that states make that is often coming from those donors. They're saying, we're not going to stop, you know, cash payments, out-of-pocket expenditure for healthcare, even though lots of states are saying, actually, we want to change this. So I'm not letting governments off the hook because they're quite happy for the poor to pay for their healthcare. 
But this is also still being backed by the World Bank that have always been pushing for out-of-pocket expenditure for healthcare and is increasingly just seen as the done thing or new insurance programmes that are flawed or microcredit and microlending. So I take your point, it's not just global health, but I think not so much the WHO, but definitely the donors in low and middle income countries are still shaping quite a lot of what happens on the ground of, for example, why people get ARVs but can't get access to other healthcare, or why Salome Kawa can survive Ebola but will die in childbirth. That is being set at the global level, I would say. You could disagree, but that's what I would argue. And then, Kate, yeah, you're, this is the question I always come back to. Like, what is particular about health? And I think what's particular about health is multiple things, actually. It's, the, it's a sector that is 75%, 70%, 75% dominated by women. So, it's a, you know, so all these sort of, kind of arguments of, well, if you just had more women... Then, this, then we'd fix back to care. It's like, well, here they all are. <laughs> or if you just had more women leaders, you're like, well, we have women leaders. That doesn't make any difference. They're here. Um, and I think it's very interesting because of this relationship between science, medicine, eugenics, and colonialism, and how that is dealt with within the sector or completely ignored. It's also really interesting because unlike other issues affecting women, quite a lot of money goes into women's health. Not as much as we'd like it to, ever, always more, but in comparison to other sectors, it's actually quite well funded. So this idea of like, well, if we had more women or we had more money doesn't kind of always apply, I think, within uh, women's health. And then, no one's asked me this because you're such a great audience, but when I do these talks, everyone's like, but what about men's health? I'm like, yeah. I mean, people only politicise men's health when men give birth. That's the only time. Otherwise, you know, people aren't trying to win elections off the back of men's health. People are not trying to galvanise their political base off the man back of men's health, where they are doing it on women's health. Okay, I see a hand up over there and here. And uh, I saw her first, sorry. <laughs> um, thank you. Um, Sophie, that was fabulous. Thank you. I'm Jocelyn Clark, the international editor at the BMJ, but very recently the executive editor of The Lancet. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about the divide and conquer mm. form of backlash that you hinted at and ask if you could you know, describe more from your point of view what that means and how we can overcome it. So one form of that is um, when women's groups are pitted against each other, mm -hmm. such as women's health advocates versus transgender health advocates, for example, and also feminist health advocates being pitted against decolonialists. Can you, does that have a place within your analysis, and can you tell us a bit about how that might be harmful and how we can overcome it? Someone over right here. Hi, Sophie. I'm Camilla from MSC Media Comms Development. So I don't know if this question is a bit stupid, but I came from Indonesia and, you know, like, we're very traditional and all that. Um, you know, like, talking about hi hijacking women's health, it's a woman's fight, basically. And you can see in this room, like, 90% are women. But so, Relating to media and comms, I'm thinking, right, like how can media and communication help in this kind of fight? But also, like, if I'm thinking about media and communication, then the audience would be men and women. 
So how do I actually influence not only women to move towards this, but how can we include men into this campaign, you know? Because I'm thinking they can't say, oh, you know, that's woman's body. And so of course, like, I can't say no or yes, but then we're actually limiting half of the audience of the media. So, yeah. Okay, and then back there. Hello, thank you very much, Sophie, for your talk. I think it was fantastic. Um, I'm a uh, graduate student in the International Development Department. And my main question, which is like the concern I have after your talk, is that we know that we need to mobilize resources if we want to improve women's health. And we know that both instrumentalization works is efficient in mobilizing those resources and politicizing is also efficient in mobilizing them. So if we want to avoid those two, how can we still mobilize those resources? Thank you. I'm going to take the, uh, what is my chair? I'm the chair. The chair's prerogative. <laughs> I'm my chair. Um, and say, Crenshaw talked about intersectionality. And in one of her articles, she says that uh, for everybody to have rights, we need to look at the people who have the least rights, whether it's women, people of color, women of color. Does that also work with women's health? Because you were saying we need to have women's health for women. Mm. But it is also um, tell us something broader. If we have women's health, do we have like a healthy society? Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> okay, great. Um, ten minutes. Ten minutes, great, that's fine. I can fall back on that when I don't have anything to say. Um, so thank you, I thought it was you, Jocelyn. So lovely to see you. So um, Jocelyn really kind of led the women in gender in science, medicine and health at the Lancet and did like a fantastic special issue and has been so influential. So it's lovely that you could be here as well, Jocelyn. And yet, this divide and conquer form of backlash and how, what do we do about it? It definitely does concern me. Um, and I definitely, it's something that depresses me. And I think I, I kind of sway from just not giving it oxygen because I think lots of the feminists I work with are trans inclusive. Um, when I speak about women, I mean all women. Um, but there is obviously that does happen when we are pitted against each other. So I don't think we should be pitting ourselves against each other. That's the first thing. And I also think, you know, there'll be some things that not everyone's going to agree with what I say, and that's okay, and there's space for that as well. And I think, yeah, I think in a way, I just sometimes I just think not giving silence to that part because it deflects so much from the issues that unite us. And I think the people that are trying to divide women and feminists in this kind of way, they're not interested in women's health. They're not the ones that are interested in women's rights. And they're not the ones that are coming on the marches that are posting the abortion. But they're not, they're not there. So I feel you're right, but in a way... I think this question of feminists being pitted against decolonialists, um, for me, feminism is always anti-racist. And that's an inclusive feminism and what I want feminism to be about. But for that to happen specifically in health, there has to absolutely be a reckoning in the past of global health and its colonial roots. And that's not just token inclusion and representation of people from the global south or scholars of colour, which just really scratches the surface. That is saying, okay, actually, we can't decolonize global health. We can make it anti-racist. 
And again, this is to shout out my colleague Nivi Manchanda, who's always like, no, Sophie, don't bother decolonising, just make it anti-racist. That we can do. You can't decolonise it because its roots are so colonial. But having those conversations and not trying to think that everyone is just going to come for you in what you're saying or your use of terminology, but I think it's so important that we sort of say, actually, we're stronger together on these issues. Um, and it could be potentially hugely harmful. I think it is hugely harmful. I don't think anyone is benefiting from these divisions at all. It's definitely not women's health. Um, Camilla, not a stupid question, a difficult question. I love it. Um, so how can we influence and include men? So there's a very instrumental he for she kind of UN way of doing it. You have to mobilise men as well. I think you're right. I think it's important for men to actually care about this too. But in a way... I sort of like, I've really wrestled with this question over the years. I'm like, yes, men must be involved. We need male allies. We need male allies in powerful positions, but male allies also need to know when to seat the floor, right? They also need to know how to use their powerful positions, not in a way that necessarily gains them credit or a biscuit. Okay. We all, I mean, I love biscuits. What am I saying? I can also seed the floor from time to day and do it in a kind of meaningful way. And I think it's really notable that this is the Fred Halliday Memorial Lecture. And Fred Halliday was quite you know, famous for doing that and being a male ally. Um, that's, I think, how we get men on board. I'm not going to spend my time or waste my breath trying to convince men that women's health matters. Like, they should work that one out for themselves. I mean, and not, you know, there are men here. Um, and on communications in the media, I mean, fundamental, fundamental in the fight for sexual and reproductive rights and justice, media and communications, fundamental in just general behaviour change communication, but also getting the message out of how people can access services, um, how these services are available. Um, yeah, so if you're, that's what you're interested in, your work, then that's really, really important work because that's how these things change. That's how we hear about Iran and what's happening in Iran. This is how we can communicate and see these kind of solidarities in that way. So it's really important work. And then, sorry, I didn't have your name, I just had grad student. Um, yeah, this kind of like, how do you mobilise resources without instrumentalising it, without saying that this is for a certain end? I mean, how about this will just stop women dying from childbirth? That seems to be all right for me. I see your point, right? The problem you have with this is this kind of escalating crying wolf problem. This has been you know, a big issue in global health security um, with the securitisation of health. And again, Claire's work, how can you desecuritize and over-securitize? One of the big problems with this is everyone thought that HIV and AIDS got loads of money because it was a security threat and it was framed as a security threat. It was the first health issue to ever be called a threat to international security by the UN Security Council, which is completely rubbish because transnational organizations have been mobilizing to try and get money for AIDS for years. And then the UN Security Council resolution comes along and everyone's like, that's what's done it. And then everyone said, what you need to do in health is you need to do an AIDS, i.e. you need to securitise something. You, if you securitise Ebola or you securitise Zika, this is what works. And then it escalates. And of course it doesn't work, because it only works for what people care about. So the article I was talking about with Sarah Davis, we started with, like, should we securitise maternal health? Is this a problem? But it ups the ante, because then when the big one comes, like COVID-19, you're saying to everyone, this is going to be a security threat, they're like, yeah, you said this before. So instrumentalisation, I just, yeah... Why, does, why can't we just say that women's health matters because it stops women dying when they don't have to? If you can't get behind me, then you're going to be asking me for the indicators, the alibis. You know, more problems come. If you can't get behind people on that basis, then we're never going to get people behind us. Okay. Um, I think our time is actually up.
Um, so I would like to uh, thank Professor Sophie Harmon. And thank Dr. Marsha Henry. And lastly, thank all of you for coming. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.